This is At The Table. I'm Jared Rizzi. We are here in Local 16 Live in the upper ballroom area. Uh, if you have not been able to make it out to one of these events, we have a lot of fun, whether it's for debate nights or other events. Basically what we do is we try to take over this space and, and everyone over at Local 16, Aman Ayub, and the rest of the team, I know uh, Paul's working tonight, Natalia's working tonight, everyone's been so generous and helpful in trying to make these shows possible. So please come out, enjoy that. The food is good, the drinks are good, everybody's been really helpful and uh, you will have a good time as well. As I said, Jared Rizzi, this is At The Table, a conversation that we try to have where we put hospitality at the center of our politics, rethinking some of the, the basic assumptions. Uh, and, and sometimes we also go out into the weeds a little bit and talk different uh, policy areas. And I, I'm really excited to be able to do that tonight with the guest I have at the table with me right now, Kyle Pomerlo, who's the chief economist and vice president of economic analysis over at Tax Foundation. Kyle, thank you so much for coming out here, spending a little time with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really glad you were able to. And uh, I, I spoke about this in, a, in an episode I did this week where it was basically the concept of Impeachment is everything that most people are talking about right now, and and you and I could probably have uh, a, a a conversation of great length that does not draw on your expertise about you know what that means. And we certainly want to get in the concept of, for example, uncertainty in the market and everything else. I will ask about that eventually. But the great thing about this is we're here in the new fiscal year, October 1st. Uh, we've, we've got a CR that'll get us through the next few weeks. Again, we can talk about uncertainty later. But th there are other things going on in Washington. And one of the things I'd like to talk about is... And, and to start with is the president is very much banking on, and this unfortunately does dovetail into impeachment, uh, he, he is banking on this concept of a good economy buoying him to a second term. Uh, whether that's true or not at this point, and whether or not that's enough at this point, that remains to be seen and maybe for other people. But what I'd like to talk about with you there are many indicators right now that show a downturn potentially in the economy. So what do you see? What is the snapshot of where we are right now? Is is the uh, puffery that the president's offering on Twitter and elsewhere, uh, is that accurate or is it, uh, or is it uh, a pretty reasonable description of what's actually happening out there in the real world? The current economy, I think, is a, it's a mixed bag and it kind of reflects the policies that he's put forth, they've been pretty much a mixed bag in terms of how they're how they're going to impact uh, the the economy overall. So, I mean, his first major policy achievement was the ta the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the tax reform that was passed at the end of 2017, um, that reduced individual income taxes, cut corporate taxes, and reformed uh, the way that uh, the tax system treats foreign profits of U.S. multinationals. This policy overall, at least in the short run, is projected to have positive effects on the U.S. economy. So the Congressional Budget Office that tries to look at how these policies affect the U.S. economy said that in 18, the year after the, the first year in which the tax cuts were in effect, the economy would grow at roughly 3%, and about one-tenth of that nominal growth or real growth would be due to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, due to the tax cut spurring additional economic activity from the lower tax burdens, but also increased investment from the lower cost of capital from the corporate tax cuts. 
Now, that's not supposed to last forever. So a lot of the effect was supposed to be in 18 and 19, and then it tapers off, and the economy is supposed to slow down below 2% real growth by 2022, um, partly because the tax cuts are going to expire, but also because we have dem underlying demographic challenges in the U.S. economy that are going to slow down our growth rate um, in the long term. So that's policy one, and kind of explains 2018. 2019's a little bit more mixed, and that's when you get into the second policy that the, tr that the Trump administration has pushed, and those would, that would be the trade war. And the, tra the trade war, the escalation of tariffs on a lot of imports, that ha has introduced a lot of economic uncertainty. So where the CBO said, absent any, anything else, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act should produce economic growth close to 2.8%, in real terms in 2019, well, then you add in tariffs, that is going to slow the economy somewhat from there. And that's what we're seeing. And if you look directly at the underlying economic data, what, what you see is consumption in the US economy is pretty strong, but what's lagging is business investment. And that's, that's actually a pretty negative thing concerning uh, given that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was supposed to spur business investment. That's what I wanted to get to you, because but, you, you know, yeah. you, this was a big promise that this was going yeah. to be reinvested, yeah. and instead what we're seeing is what Democrats uh, alleged was going to happen, which is that it has mostly trickled into corporate profits, shareholder dividends, and that's not the kind of thing that adds, you know, th that burnishes the economy in the way that it was promised. Yeah, so... Uh, We'll leave the, the, the Democratic talking points aside for a second, um, and I can talk about those, because I think there's a kernel of truth to those that it's worth discussing. But yeah, the, the, the tragedy here is that you have one tax policy that's underlying, supposed to encourage investment, and another that's creating economic uncertainty, so companies are not investing. So what you have is an administration kind of undermining its own arguments about what its policies are, are supposed to be doing. Um, now, in terms of the Democratic talking points, for uh, I, once the tax cuts were passed, I mean, the biggest effect you saw almost immediately were, were stock buybacks. Mm -hmm. um, corporations facing this big tax cut, they got a big windfall of after-tax profits from the reduced corporate rate, but also this proposal that um, cut taxes on their foreign profits that they held overseas. The combination of those two things freed up a lot of money for companies, and naturally, when a company sees a windfall of profits that they weren't expecting after tax, well, they're going to send it back to their shareholders. There's really no expectation, unless you're the Trump administration, that these profits would go straight to workers. Right. Where workers benefit, and this is more of a long-term story than a short-term one, is that when you reduce the corporate tax, and introduce what's called expensing, allowing companies to fully write off new investments the year in which they're put in place. These policies reduce what's called the cost of capital or the cost of an additional unit of investment. It increases the return on those new investments so companies are more willing to pursue those investments. Well, if you have more investment, eventually you have a larger capital stock. And a capital stock, you can think of it as all the, all the tools that workers use to get their jobs done. So it's computers, but also like machines like lathes and as large as factories. And reducing the tax rate on those, prof uh, on those investments prospectively should increase the, the amount of that investment. And with better tools, workers are more productive. And that 
would create a bidding process to bid up wages. That doesn't happen overnight. That effect in the short run is small. So that kind of gets clouded in a lot of this that, you know, in the long run, we expect something like that. But, you know, the Trump administration is doing a lot to undermine that. So you may not see it uh, maybe ever because the, the trade war might be pushing against that. Kyle, before we get to the, the trade war, because I do want to spend a, a good chunk of time on tariffs, I want to push back on this this uh, this reinvestment quagmire because I think about what you just described in capital investments for for people. Now, in, in general, that sounds positive, what you're talking about. Hey, more lathes, we can do more things. But I'm thinking about some of the stories that we have heard, some of the, the real people's lives that we have heard in the last few months. And it's, well, this factory is going to close because the capital investment that they made was in a plant somewhere else, or the capital investment was in robotics and other things that will actually eliminate those jobs, not just make those jobs easier and more productive. That is a difficult political story that also undermines and, and, and undercuts the economic message that you're talking about. Yeah, the, there's, the story is complicated when you start looking at specific geographies or specific industries. And a lot of these industries were in transition already before attack, before the tax cut was put in place. Um, I wouldn't suggest the tax cut accelerated anything like that. And a lot of this stuff was induced, you know, it's induced by technological change. And it's something that we've dealt with throughout all of human history. Um, as technologies are produced, certain jobs go away, certain jobs appear, and there's always pain with that transition. But there's the populist argument against that, which says, oh, you're going you're gonna to be able to be a coal miner just like your father was, just like your grandfather was. That doesn't, again, these are political promises yeah. that cut against the kind of, I think, straight up and down economic argument that yes. you're trying to make. Yeah, and I, to some extent, the Trump administration kind of boxed, it boxed itself in there, right? It promised that we will be able to save these jobs um, and you'll be able to keep keep working in the coal mine and everything will be great. But the administration really hasn't pursued anything to uh, to really prevent that transition that was already taking place. Right. Now, I, as an economist, I don't necessarily want to stop a transition to a newer, cleaner, better technology if it's going to improve people's lives. But what you should be doing, and the, again, the administration really hasn't been pursuing this, is looking at policies that ease the transition, whether that is paying coal miners um, when they lose their job, um, shifting them into retraining, yeah. shifting them into a pension um, as a transition, or other policies that some Democratic uh, candidates are talking about. Uh, we, we don't see it from the administration, but they are... You know, that is within the realm of possibility. Um, so it, 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 I think it is true that the the administration, in a way, has boxed itself in, and that you know, it's it's promised one thing, but it's de it's delivered another um, in terms of this investment story or creating jobs. The last of these kind of promises that I want to get you to try to respond on, and again, I know these aren't your policies, it's not like you're an administration economist, uh, but I, I do want to ask you about this fundamental question. Um, we hear it a lot from 
we talked a minute ago about Democratic talking points. This is a very strong Republican talking point that this tax cut's going to pay for itself, that it's going to, um, you know, that uh, that we are not seeing that at all. And and for many people, there was a, well, of course not. Um, but I imagine that there are some people, maybe colleagues of yours, who may have been a little bit more bullish about that, that possibility. So, so I think that there is... Um you could imagine any tax reform in the world, the realm of possibilities are almost I have a endless. very limited you imagination. Could, you, could, you could define something that may in some way pay for itself, but would the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act pay for itself? No. There was no way that that was going to happen. The design of the tax cut, um, a lot of it was going to families to boost their after-tax incomes that may be a policy you want to pursue that's going to make people better off, but that is not necessarily going to induce the type of economic activity necessary to broaden the tax space. You really can't go out, if just, you look across all the policies in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there are some that would boost the size of the economy at some point, bring in some revenues on a dynamic basis, but there's no way that you could expect that it's going to pay for itself. That was just, I think, a an administration talking point that, again, makes it hard for those of us who want to talk seriously about tax policy. How dare to you? Ma- yeah, to, to make the case that, you know, reform actually is good. Um, tax reform is a good thing um, and that we should pursue it. But I, I think that overselling it um, undermines the case for reform generally. Well, let's talk about the bluntest weapon that the administration has used in its uh, in its attempt to remake uh, the the economic situation, and that is, of course, what you mentioned a few moments ago: the tariffs. Okay. Using your words, the trade war, which uh, I even even I try to steer away from because uh, I think we're in we're in enough wars as it is. But apparently, that's the the way that the president likes to describe this. Uh, he has said that. The other countries are eating our lunch is the kind of phraseology he likes to use, and that this is going to make things better. Um, I don't know many economists who believe that tariffs are a good idea in general, and I think in specific for the ones that we're talking about, whether it's steel, whether it's uh, imports of agriculture, or excuse me, exports of agricultural uh, goods. So many of these seem to have been badly planned, badly implemented, and if thought out at all, badly badly constructed. So I, I guess my question to you is, are you the only economist that I know who thinks the tariffs are a good idea? Yeah, I wish you could have seen. For people who can't see Kyle's face right now, he was like, "Oh God, no!" (laughs) It's just a very economists just—they simply don't see trade the same way as Trump does, Um, or Peter Navarro, who is who I'd say is a special case of of economists. Um, He, uh, Trump, sees trade as this battle between two countries that you know, if you're exporting more, you're winning; if you're importing more, you're losing. Um, economists see trade as a thing that two countries gain from. Um, you know, even if the United States could produce all goods and services um, for itself, it still would gain from trade. Um, and so you know, tariffs, net negative for the economy, generally speaking. Now, 
I think you hit on an important point. You could make a very narrow case um, that isolating China specifically for some of the things it's done um, in terms of intellectual property sure. is probably an okay thing to do. And we saw and that even during the last administration. So the Let's last administration down. was going after the, the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, as a way to go after, to isolate China, get at some of the, the bad actions there. Trump, of course, is not really... A, if you look at how his tariffs are being structured... It's not a, he's not really going after what he should be going after. For one, yes, he's putting tariffs on China, which, you know, maybe you could make a case for the IP stuff there, but I really couldn't make that case. But also, he's putting tariffs on Mexico. He's putting tariffs on Europe. That is alienating those that maybe could have helped us isolate China and go after some of the problems that they, um, that we think that, is over there, but that's really not. Yeah, I think. Yeah. O overall, I think that you're right that you know, a very blunt tool, and he hasn't really targeted it the uh, the proper way. Well, you so. mentioned the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and again, my background, as you and I were talking before we started this conversation, uh, uh, my background, of course, I was a White House reporter for seven years through most of the Obama administration, and then the first year or so of the Trump administration. I remember the push for TPP in a very strong way. Of course, one of the first things that this administration chose to do was reverse many of those diplomatic uh, uh, commitments from the Obama era, and TPP was one of the first axes to fall. Similarly, uh, as we've seen, for example, the United Kingdom uh, dealing with uh, the Brexit, and of course we're, we're talking in October, so that could happen at any second now. Things could get even more uncertain in the global economy. I'm sure that'll keep you busy. But the, the, the president is talking about how excited he is about, or the administration is talking about how excited they are that there could be a, a, a bilateral U.S.-U.K. trade that increases drastically. Now, I don't know if that's just from, you know, service members buying at the duty-free at the airport near Turnberry, but I think that the president has been uh, pretty bullish and maybe beyond what we could expect. There hasn't really been a question here, so let me actually point with one, which is that, that, that these tariffs are part of this larger policy. The president seems to think, as you said, that trade is uh, you, you know, winners and losers, and, and it's one country versus another. I would emphasize, and I would ask you, have they missed these opportunities, whether it's TPP, TTIP, th this fantasy about making, making improvements on Brexit? Have they missed opportunities to use multilateral, multilateral agreements to emphasize the United States' strengths? And what's going to happen if this path is continued upon? Yeah, so I, yeah, we're getting a little out of my area of expertise, but I, I, I do agree that uh, the Trump administration could have gone about things in a better way. They could have used multilateral agreements to accomplish some of the goals um, that they have. Uh, now, some of the goals they have, I think, are counterproductive and actually would be harmful for the U.S. economy. I, one thing that Trump likes to complain about is the trade deficit. The trade deficit, of course, is is a somewhat meaningless metric when an economist <laughs> thinks about it. A, 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 tra a trade deficit really is just an accounting identity and how we count up the goods and services that are ultimately produced in the United States. 
um, it, relative to um, our, our consumption, it's not, it's really not a scorecard. Um, and that to the extent that he wants to reduce the trade deficit, um, you know, it, it could be harmful. And it's also, it's also, um, it's also kind of funny that he complains about the trade deficit. One thing that drives the trade deficit is an inflow of capital into the United States. So you can kind of think of it this way, that in order for foreigners to invest money in the United States, say they want to build a factory or they want to buy treasury, tre uh, treasuries from the United States, they need to get their hands on U.S. dollars. And how do they get their hands on U.S. dollars? Well, they make stuff in their country and then they sell it to Americans. And then Americans are going to give them U.S. dollars for those goods and services they import in the United States. And then foreigners can say, ah, I have these dollars now. Now I'm going to invest it into a factory or I'm going to buy treasuries. Well, given that connection, and that's an accounting identity that you really can't get around, Trump has actually put forward policies that should increase the trade deficit, not reduce them. So tariffs usually don't do much for your trade deficit. Um, However, a tax cut that reduces federal revenue, all things equal, increases the trade deficit. Why is that? Right. Because foreigners need to purchase treasuries to fund the additional borrowing as we've cut taxes. The tax cut also should encourage additional investment in the United States. And because it's the corporate tax, the corporate tax affects foreign investors as well. So foreign investors have a slightly increased incentive to invest in the United States. Right. They're going to need additional dollars to do so. They're going to sell additional products to Americans in order to get those dollars. That too, all things equal, should boost the trade deficit. So while you know, while he, that is his metric of choice. Um, you know, all things equal, Trump has probably increased the trade deficit rather than reduced it, um, given all of his policy choices. Um, but again, I don't think that that should be the goal of a uh, of a of a trade deal. I don't think it, the goal of a trade deal should be to reduce the trade the trade deficit. At the risk of uh, wandering too far from your field of expertise, let me reintroduce uh, Kyle Pomerlow is is an economist with the Tax Foundation, and joining me here we are uh, at the table. We are at Local 16, 16th and U Street here in Washington D.C., where every Tuesday uh, we try to have a little bit of these conversations. Uh, if you if you're able to come down and be a part of the audience, we'd love to have you here. And of course, at the table is a conversation beyond just this once a week, uh, where we talk about uh, policy. Politics. We talk about uh, different different uh, topics all the time, and 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 frankly, I have been so heartened by the different perspectives that we are able to get, and I, and I really appreciate Kyle's uh, ability to come down and join me. You, you you kind of to get back into your wheelhouse a little bit. You you mentioned some monetary policy questions, and I want to talk about currency manipulation because that's something that the president has also been very vocal about. And yet I wonder how these policies, whether it's tariffs or other, um, you know, identifying China as a currency manipulator, for, uh, for example, how these, again, blunt instruments, do they get the job done, though? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think they, necess they, they do. I think that they, you know, in a, in a way, they, at least how he's gone about this has kind of isolated the United States relative to another strategy he could have used. Say, you could imagine a world in which he goes to Europe and says, you know, 
we want to pursue this issue. We think is we think it's important. We think that there are problems with the trade practices of China. We go to Mexico. We say we think there are issues with China's trade practices. We go to Japan, etc., um, and together deal with it. But I think um, it has been problematic that he uh, um, has gone at this um, by himself in kind of a haphazard way. I think haphazard is probably a little generous, but I'll I'll leave it there. Um, one thing on the on the tariffs that I before we because I, I also want to talk about the other half of this conversation that you and I are having. I want to talk very much about the democratic plans that we're seeing in 2020, whether it's wealth tax, VAT has been discussed, UBI, universal basic income, Medicare for all. These are things that would fundamentally shift the economy and uh, and and uh, not just taxes, but also uh, some of the the ways uh, entitlement spending is, is structured in very significant ways. But before we get to that, uh, I'm thinking about tariffs and the other thing that strikes me, and, and we talk about some of these moments where uh, my, my capacity to be shocked and surprised, uh, I didn't think after three or four years of having Donald Trump on the national stage, I still could have the capacity to be, <laughs> to be shocked, but uh, sometimes things still happen. I saw that, uh, and this is just in the last couple of weeks, people have been f uh, floating this number around that we're talking about uh, $28 billion in grants have been given to farmers in the United States as kind of a repairing the damage done by the tariffs that you and I have been talking about. And of course, again, blunt instrument, the, the, the goal was to hurt China, but in fact we're hurting American farmers. Now, I contrast that to something like the auto bailout, which was $12 billion, not 28 but $12 billion, and was a loan, not a grant. And I think about the stink that Republicans in Congress made about that, how it almost didn't happen. And now we're seeing, with very little fanfare, a much larger amount of money that's not a loan meant to patch up a, a, a policy that you just described as haphazard. So why are we here, and is this going to be something that Republicans reconcile with uh, their, their stated philosophy of being uh, a, a little bit more fiscally responsible? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave aside um, the issue of whether Republicans are consistent with their philosophy. Um, on well, I think your tone day. really says it all. Um, <laughs> but I think it a lot to do with constituent poli sure. politics to, to a large degree um, to be uh, serious. But um, I think it, it, under, it underlines two things. One, in, a, in, in trade policy, especially tariffs, there are, there are winners and losers. There are, always are. So when you enact a tariff, you are creating a differential tax burden between two different goods or one set of goods and all other goods, and you're distorting people's choices to or from different industries. And here, we have in the United, or with Trump's policies, the idea was to benefit, say, the steel industry, for sure. example. And you know, certainly, at least in the short run, they may have been winners in that, but there are also losers. And Consumers usually ended up being the or were ended up being the losers here. Now, one thing to say about that is that in politics, that's tough because there are lots and lots of consumers that end up paying slightly higher prices, where the winner is a one industry that gets lots and lots of money from those right. consumers. 
Uh, then there's the, the second issue, which a lot of people kind of discount. So you, Trump, say he enacts $100 billion worth of tariffs. That's a large amount. $10 billion worth of tariffs. You could hypothetically estimate what the effect on the economy of that extra $10 billion tax spread across all consumers are. But when it comes to trade policy, that's usually not where it, it doesn't end there because there, there are other countries in the world that react to your trade policies. And usually you get tariffs enacted from the U.S. side and then China responds. And then the U.S. responds and China responds. And it's bid up. And unfortunately... That's just doubling or tripling the initial burden that of the ten billion dollars, and I think that's where a lot of these the the bailouts or the, the the subsidies for farmers are coming from is that well you started with tariffs that didn't initially hit farmers, although it kind of did in a way because the people that own the farms have to pay slightly higher prices ever so slightly higher prices on things, but then they get hit because. China reacts to those initial tariffs. So although you know, Trump didn't initially target them, they end up getting hit because that's just the way trade wars unfold um, through escalation. Speaking of escalation, I was told, my wife and I are doing this home renovation, and I was told by my general contractor that we needed to move quickly because some of the items that we are buying, these big-ticket items uh, with parts or components that are made either from raw materials that are coming from elsewhere or that themselves are made elsewhere, uh, that those prices are going to go through the roof because of these policies, and that we should do things sooner rather than later. Is this a phenomenon that what, what is, I'm describing what's happening and I'm basically grousing about my pocketbook issue. What is the economist's term for this? Because I'm sure that there's a smarter way to discuss this than just I need to buy this this piece of something this month and not next month when these tariffs kick in. Yeah, so we, we see this in tax policy all the time and it doesn't necessarily have to be trade. Uh, when you change taxes or you announce a change in, in tax policy, People respond to that in expectation of the tax. Now, with the tariffs, what you're describing is people stocking up on inventory in expectation of a higher tax burden in the future. And, and what's interesting about that, you can see that in economic data. You can see that you know, in certain periods before tariffs were enacted, it, the growth in inventories, which is a component of investment, kind of ramped up before it fell which it, would juice the economy in that moment right that, in, in a short in a short moment and that is my my general caution to anyone that looks at economic data uh, on a quarterly or monthly basis and tries to draw strong conclusions because that stuff especially investment data bounces all over the place for all sorts of different reasons but the, the timing effect of tax policy is a real one and you see this across you know all taxes whether it's expensing policy if you announce that you are going to say it's it's october and we're say on january 1st you're going to if you're a business and you invest in a new factory we will allow you to deduct the full the full value of that investment um where under current law you can only deduct a portion at a time well you're going to see a big fall off in q4 investment in factories right. because everyone will wait for Q1 of next year. Um, it, it's something you see uh, 
all the time. Well, I'm glad it's not just my basement that suffers. And this is Kyle Pomerleau, who's an economist with the Tax Foundation. Let's talk about Democrat pl- Democrats' plans for 2020, whether uh, we've seen from, for example, Senators Sanders and Warren talking about wealth tax, um, uh, VAT, uh, value-added tax, has been floated around by some candidates as an option. Uh, Andrew Yang is, is famously touting a universal basic income, UBI, as a way that could potentially... Um, not just provide these lump sums, but also, uh, I think, in the long run, uh, replace other aid programs. I think that's kind of the subtext of it. Uh, And then, of course, one of the big questions in the Democratic primary thus far uh, has been whether or not health care needs to be overhauled yet again with a Medicare for all system. Talk about these pilots. Before we get into any of them specifically, Talk to me about where these policies exist in the the kind of philosophical bent. Uh, I know econ- economists have uh, you know kind of silos that they try to put these things in. Uh, these are not ideas that have been used. I mean, I you know obviously places in the world uh, like you know, we see VAT in Europe, for example. Uh, we see wealth tax in certain places. Uh, there are a couple countries, small countries, that you do UBI, and and certainly the United States is very alone when it comes to uh, how they treat uh, health care. So, how do economists view this this slate? And and by economists, I mean let's just talk you. Uh, this slate of potential changes because they're all rather large. Yeah, I think that's I think the best way to describe it is they're they're very ambitious um, the policies and we I, one should be used to this if you're follow, if following presidential politics at least even the Republican primaries back in 15 and 16 I, it was different a different set of policy and priorities but it was a lot of ambition there as well um, in just because and. I'll say just because you think the policies themselves are unrealistic in the state that they're being proposed now does not mean they don't matter. Uh, the one you know, big policy that Republicans were able to accomplish and the Trump administration was able to accomplish was tax reform and tax cuts. Well, what policy did almost every single Republican primary contender have? They had a big tax cut proposal. You know, those proposals were massive and unrealistic or ambitious, but it lined up um, the priority um, for for the tax cuts. Now, in tax policy, you can kind of see the same thing happening. I don't think the Democratic candidates don't have tax reforms. They're not looking at the tax code and saying, we're going to fundamentally reform the way the United States collects revenue. What they are doing for tax policies, they're saying, okay, we think the tax code is not progressive enough. We think that there's a large swath of income, specifically capital income, that is not being taxed properly or escaping taxation altogether. Therefore, we are proposing these set of policies to get after this type of income. Whether it's a wealth tax, mark-to-market taxation of capital gains, eliminating the step-up basis of capital gains at death, all of these things get at there is a certain amount of income that's not being taxed properly, and we're going to go after it. So I think that you, that that's how you should see these priorities line up. So they're all very ambitious. Wealth tax is very ambitious, but I think it gets at a specific goal that is, at the end of the day, obtainable. And and to kind of tie back to a point that you were making earlier in this conversation, 
there's an acknowledgement on the progressive side of this ledger that says the this money that we're targeting for increased taxation isn't just being undertaxed, but it's also being underutilized in the economy. That because it's being um, held by already wealthy uh, individual earners or corporations, and because it's not being reinvested in a way that actually spurs growth. Again, just kind of recapping what we were just talking about, and, and, and kind of the 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 sense of whether these dollars are are being used uh, effectively. The, the the democratic proposals that we're seeing are basically saying, look. This is money that, that would be better served in the economy if it were redistributed in a way that spurs more growth. Now, again, that's exactly the same message that you heard from Republicans who were promising these cuts and, and, and saying that they needed to happen for those exact same reasons. But I think just to contrast with what you were saying a few moments ago, it seems like these policies might actually be able to do it. Uh, so I, I'd say that you, you see one side of the ledger. Um, so I do I do see a lot of proposals that could potentially raise a lot of revenue. I think the value-added tax is actually the one that could raise a lot more revenue. I have yet to see, however, the other side of policies that could be constructed to increase growth or reallocate um, assets to, to better uses. Um, we're certainly not seeing any policies to encourage investment. Um, we're also not seeing policies to offset the reduction in savings that would occur under, say, a wealth tax, which is a cost to the economy. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think that philosophically that is where they're going, going to, to. And, you know, some of it is not necessarily growth enhancing, but it's, it's welfare enhancing policy. So it would be improvements to the healthcare system or transfers through universal basic income, that's where I'm seeing most of the action, is that there's a lot of this income that's not being taxed. There's also a problem with the progressivity of our system. There are people that whose incomes haven't grown as much as they should have in the eyes of uh, the, the, the Democratic candidates, so we are going to boost their after-tax incomes by transferring some of that money to them, either through new transfer programs um, or through a health care reform that reduces the, the cost of health care, which is a, a boost to, to um, after-tax income at the end of the day. For people who don't have your background and training, both e economics, public policy, and I would include myself in that in that background because political science majors like myself are, are usually less adept at these kinds of things than people with, with your background. So for, for me and for other people who might be similarly deficient, talk, of me, talk with me about the kind of rate these policies in terms of their progressive nature. For, for example, um, I, I've seen a lot of direct comparisons, wealth tax versus VAT. And I don't want to get too far into the nitty-gritty of those individual proposals because I know that we're talking about candidates who have specific things, and I don't necessarily want to compare their apples to their oranges. But I, in general, when we're talking about wealth tax, when we're talking about VAT, when we're talking about UBI, how do they compare in terms of progressivism uh, of the tax code in term, and, and, and maybe uh, even in terms of uh, positive economic outcomes for the people who are uh, who, who are benefiting from those proposals. So I, I we just compare and contrast the wealth tax and the value added tax, which I think are um, you know two pretty big taxes. I'd say the value added tax is the potential to raise a lot more revenue. 
So if you are a candidate that has very ambitious domestic policy goals on the spending side, whether it's Medicare for all or a big universal basic income, the reality is, is you need a very broad-based tax that can raise a lot of revenue. Or you can just do what Republicans do and just run up the deficit. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so that that's a question, too, especially if you're, um, if you're thinking about some of these policies, you know, how much can the government borrow on a persistent right. basis to fund them? I'd say that if, if you're thinking about government borrowing, there is a difference between short-run deficits and, and structural deficits. Right. Can the government borrow an additional trillion dollars over the next 10 years without a lot of harm? Probably. Could it persistently run a gap of $1.5 every single year in perpetuity? Probably not. But I, maybe, I, maybe I am wrong, and uh, some people who think that the government can borrow unlimited amounts are right. But um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it scares me when people talk about it, So I, I, but my fear is not usually a good barometer for whether things are yeah. good policy or not. So the, the value-added tax, broad-based tax, it is a consumption-based tax. So you think of it very much like a retail sales tax, but instead of being collected right at the end at the register when the individual purchases a good, it's collected in stages along the production process. That actually is better than a retail sales tax because there is a there's a um, self-enforcement mechanism by which the the tax works. That um, companies kind of they they make sure they get receipts from one another in order to get rebates for the taxes they've paid on inputs um, before they pay their VAT to um, the the government. So there's there's a there's a logic to the way the value-added tax works. It actually doesn't distort economic. Um, decision-making all that much compared to many taxes. So it's a pretty efficient tax. Um, and you alluded to this, uh, most countries in the world have value-added taxes. They're of varying quality in terms of how broad their bases are. Um, but, you know, in general, the 100, 170 countries or so have value-added taxes, uh, and they raise significant revenue. And the United States is one of the only countries that does not have one. Um, so, you know, Andrew Yang is the one that's proposing the value-added tax. He, I think he's on to something there in terms of the the tax you need when you need a lot of revenue. And then the, it, it would be described, though, would I be correct in saying that it is more regressive? You compared it to uh, a sales tax, and, of course, that is one of the most regressive ways to, to raise money for the government. But the, it, would it, it is significantly more regressive, less progressive, than a wealth tax, which basically targets money at the extreme ends and and in a, in a in a way it, it, you can describe this better than I can yeah, so, so I'll I'll let you do that yeah so so yes a consumption based tax is a is a slightly regressive tax value added tax is i would say it's regressive but it's not terribly regressive because even if you're very very wealthy and you have assets the value-added tax eventually hits those assets. In fact, you know, there was a great Twitter debate the other day about this. About I don't, I don't acknowledge that any debate on Twitter could possibly be great. Oh, no, this, <laughs> is, this was a great debate. We get into this, that one of the reasons why a value-added tax or a sales tax isn't as regressive as people think, but is you know, still slightly regressive, is when you enact a value-added tax, what you're, what you're doing, or partly what you're doing, is you're enacting a one-time lump sum tax on all existing wealth. If you have $100 in the bank, 
today it can purchase $100 worth of stuff. But if I enact a value-added tax and increase the cost of everything in the economy, you can no longer purchase $100 worth of stuff. You can only purchase, say, $90 worth of stuff. So I've just reduced the value of all assets that currently exist in the U.S. economy. Um, so that's an important thing to think about. doesn't make the value-added tax progressive, but it mitigates some of its regressive nature in how it works. Now, a wealth tax, a real wealth tax, um, now how progressive that is depends on its structure. Um, the, the tax that Elizabeth Warren has proposed, 2% on assets, on net assets of 50 million um, or above, and then an additional percentage point on net assets of 1 billion and above would be highly progressive. Very, very few households would end up paying it, um, and as a result, it would, it would drastically increase the progressivity of the U.S. tax code. Now, a challenge with the wealth tax and a potential limit to it is, one, we don't know how much wealth there is really out there. It's very hard to measure, and I can get into that in, in a second. Um, and two, even if we did, we're not certain how people would respond to a wealth tax at the end of the day, given that valuation of assets is difficult and somewhat gameable, especially if you're a very wealthy business owner and most of your asset is held in, say, a privately owned company. Well, what's the value of a privately owned company that's not traded on the stock market on a daily basis? Well, we don't really know. Um, and, and look no further than the president of the United States, who famously has, you know, yeah. fluctuated value of everything he's ever owned, depending on who's counting. Yeah, and there is a question of whether he really is a, a, a billionaire. Um, and you can look at the, the the Forbes list. I mean, there there's questions about whether that's accurate, because you know, who wouldn't want to get on that list and brag about their wealth? The incentive, of course, is to overstate your wealth. Um, for that for that list and that's a challenge with estimating the revenue effect of a wealth tax because if you're relying on that information you are potentially overstating the revenue effect of this tax now there are economists that estimated the effect of elizabeth warren's wealth tax they think that it would raise about 2.7 trillion dollars over a decade there is a question as to whether that is an accurate amount or if it's too much. Um, Larry Summers, another uh, famous economist, he estimated that you'd get about less than half of that. Um, and he was estimating it in a totally, totally different way. So the methodology matters a great deal because we don't really know how much is out there. And um, you've mentioned, and I don't want to read too much into something you weren't saying, but you've mentioned at several points in this conversation that you think a, a value-added tax would raise significant money. I'm I'm guessing that that would indicate you're in the in the a little bit more bearish camp about what a wealth tax would be able to uh, to raise. Yes, I I'm somewhat skeptical of the 2.7 trillion dollar estimate, um, mainly because the the methodology there is, it I I think it's somewhat too bullish on the amount of wealth, especially the amount of wealth that's being held by the very, very top. I, you know, wealth inequality is pretty significant, um, but again, three different papers that estimate the amount of the wealth concentration come to three different answers. Now, that's a big issue. Whereas if I went to estimate the tax base of a value-added tax, I'd go straight to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and I'd be able to tell you the exact number. Why? 
because that's based on market transactions. The BEA can go to a restaurant like this and ask, how, what were your total sales? Right. And they would be able to provide receipts with the total market sales there and count that up throughout the economy and say, okay, this is the base of the VAT. There's, there are no such market transactions for the wealth tax. You're so just basically looking at, you're taking a snapshot saying, here's how much everything's worth. And then, yeah, I could, I mean, I could see, see how that's <laughs> problematic. That's, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, again, I, I've been under, uh, you know, underselling my intellect uh, compared to, to uh, an economist, but I think I can wrap my head around why that would be problematic. Yeah. And, and uh, in, ter in terms of magnitude, um, would just compare here a 10% value added tax prob probably raises twice as much as the, the very large wealth tax um, that Elizabeth Warren is proposing. Um, so the, 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 the bases are vastly different as well. I want to get to a question that I know you're you're going to think is a little bit outside your wheelhouse, but I, I, I am going to push you for it anyway. Again, this is Kyle Pomerlo, who's uh, chief economist and VP of economic uh, analysis at Tax Foundation, and I mention that not just to remind people of who you are, but Tax Foundation is here in D.C. known as like a center-right kind of uh, a think tank and has corporate backing, as many places do, but it tends to have a, a little bit of a libertarian bent um, because of some of the 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 and I, I mentioned that not to try to credential you or to try to you know paint you with a with a brush but I want the question I want to ask is a very particular one and it's about politics because I think about some of the questions that we see whether it's healthcare we didn't really get too much into Medicare for all but I think about gun safety I think about prison reform and the fundamental question that I've been seeing in this democratic primary debate, is should corporate profit and shareholder value be the first or or necessary lens through which those problems get solved? Because whenever I hear discussions about why those problems are intractable, the question is, well, you know, you're you're not going to gain a profit. The people who are, you know, you, whether it's the healthcare, health insurance industry, or you know, any other of these stakeholders, that that we have to consider these profits first and foremost. And that, to me, is a problem, because I look at these and I say these are totally solvable problems if you don't put corporate profit or shareholder dividends first. Anyone who's worked in a in a company and in, in a in a different industry has probably seen where decisions get made for short-term benefits of profit or shareholder value, and seen those as probably I I you know from the radio business I you know I can think of a lot of examples of that. So my my question to you is a philosophical one, and I know that it's a political one and, and maybe potentially outside of, of, of what you might be most comfortable speaking about, but I'd really push for an answer, which is, can we get to a politics that doesn't consider that as a necessary lens, and would that make some of these problems easier to solve? Yeah, this is probably slightly too philosophical for me, but you How? did you did bring up a lot of things that I could that I can address. So the, the first one is I I I I, I do recognize that the structure of some corporations and the, the structure of management it can lead to some poor decisions. 
I do think, however, that overall the idea of short-termism um, in corporate decision-making or at least invest investment decision-making is a fake problem that doesn't actually exist. Um, and you can kind of see that if you just look at the stock market. Um, my, example, my favorite example from 2016 was actually Shake Shack. Um, this, was, this is a great example because it's an example in which investors continued to throw money at this at this company that had negative profits. That's kind of odd for investors that are short-termist, short right? Well, the reason is because they felt that this investment was a good one for the long term. They said the potential of this company is great. You could go back, you could also think, say this about Amazon. You could say there's a lot of companies. I just don't think that that's a widespread issue in terms of decision-making. I do, I do recognize that the way corporate boards are structured and you know, there's a lot of cronyism there, just like there's cronyism everywhere. That's, that's problematic. But and, I think, and by the way, we have seen a, 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 you know, Warren, Senator Warren has in among several of her plans discussed reforms for corporate boards. This yeah. is something that she's addressed head on and said that is important for people to, to consider. I, I, I find those arguments to be maybe a little bit more compelling than you might, but I think that there is a sense that we need to make sure for the efficiency and for the, you know, uh, the, the improvement of the economy to, to say, look, these are these are things we can't allow, the, the cronyism that you're describing. Yeah, so so there are yeah, there are places in which you need to stop and ask, do we, we need to define rules in a way in which the market works properly? And this just the, this is across the board, whether it's for pollution or transparency and probably the pricing. best example which I didn't even bring up which yes. is which is the environment and, yeah. and just so, and climate crisis. Yeah, so you know the yeah the climate is a perfect example of this that in and I think economists have great insight into this. I the market without anything will tend to pollute and overpollute and the reason is that you know the air there's no there really is no price to end to enter the air in a way, right? So if you are producing a good and it's uh, and it is polluting the air, whether it's through carbon carbon emissions, you're not paying the price for that. In fact, you're not. Everyone else is, ends up paying the price for that. So a way to structure a rule would be to add a price to that. Just like there's a price to consume any other good or services service in the U.S. economy. A price signal for pollution would solve a lot of problems. And talking very specifically about a carbon tax, for example, which I think um, a few candidates have proposed. Um, and I, I think all. So I wanted to get back to your your very broad point too. There's also an issue of you know where where the market may not work very well, and this may not necessarily have anything to do with you know emphasizing shareholder value is just this idea of market failures where that there's not a lot of transparency in prices healthcare, healthcare has, to, has a, to be the, healthcare is a perfect one especially with the insurance market this is the idea of adverse selection that there's not perfect information between consumer and producer of this product therefore the producer has to average across lots of people what that means is that very healthy people not may not necessarily want to buy insurance that will cover something that that they may not necessarily need. They drop out of the market. The insurance company then reevaluates its average, and that just pushes premiums up and up and up. 
that is the free market for health insurance, and that does not work. So there are areas in which the government can step in with regulations to um, adjust for that. Um, but I, I don't know if it's necessarily driven by what you'd call like um, shareholder value or the the profit motive. Um, but you know, the, the, there are things that need to be considered that you, know, you just letting things run run their course in a general sense is good. Uh, the market is good, but there are places where there are real failures, pollution, healthcare um, that you know, should be addressed in reasonable ways. I just I see that as the central framing of this Democratic primary right now. Whether it's and and maybe that's the way in which the the party has been drifting to one direction, where you have this sense of the market is no longer the the, the trust. And of course, this is being painted by uh, Republicans as saying, well, this is this is socialism. But it's it's really. I would say not. It's 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 acknowledging what you just described, which is that market failure exists, and if we can't trust the market, that's not default socialism. I mean, it's obviously not being offered as a good faith argument. It's being offered as a kind of a a, a, a tag by which to to smear an entire uh, primary base. But it, to me, there is this fundamental question that Democrats are finally raising, which is um, is is the market no longer the the first place or the most necessary place to gate our policy options. And that's why I think uh, you described as ambitious some of these plans. And I think that's why we're seeing so many very ambitious plans is that there's a dis, there's a dis, uh, association from uh, market requirements to turn a profit, to uh, engender, uh, you know, shareholder value and that, that sort of thing. That's, that's, that's been my, um, Again, just kind of watching these debates and, and, and thinking about where we are now versus where we were just three or four years ago, it seems like that's a very different conversation to be having. Yeah, and that's certainly a, a philosophical lens there. There are policy, there are part, policy arguments for, say, Medicare for all um, in, in terms of you know, a, adjusting or addressing some market failures that occur in, health, in the health insurance market or healthcare in general. That isn't to say there aren't costs associated with shifting to these policies as, as well. In one area in which Sanders, for example, completely underemphasizes and almost ignores is the transition costs of going from one system to another, what that actually means, what the ultimate cost of his system would be, what the financing of the system would be, and what that means for incentives throughout the economy. There are lots of things to consider that um, once you get into the to the actual pol the policy debate, and they're all, they're all very important. Well, here's a frustrating thing, and I don't know the term for this, again, because I'm not an economist as you are, but there's been a framing of the, the Medicare question as people losing something. And it's correct that people would lose private insurance in many cases, but certainly not all cases, and private insurance would likely still exist, as it does in many countries where there's you know national health insurance or national health coverage. Um, but when I think about this, what's the, is there a phrase or a concept of your total amount, whether it's public spending and taxes and private spending and premiums and co-pays and other ways, that's going to probably go down. That's certainly the argument that Sanders, Warren, and others are making. But the idea to me is that, the, and again, th this framing uh, 
it doesn't make sense to me that it's being billed as something you're losing. I think it should be billed as something you, you're you're kind of you're paying in a different way and most likely less overall. But I don't know the term for that. Yeah. So so there are increased efficiencies through certain reforms. That that is true. I will caution, however, that if you if if you believe that the total cost across the economy goes down, that money has to come from somewhere. Someone someone has to end up losing um, in order for a bunch of people to end up winning. Um, the money can't come from right. nowhere. Health insurance companies are probably going to lose. Um, so health insurance companies, if it's a national, yeah, if it's nationalization of that, those that would be abolished. That's actually a very very small portion of national health care. Um, in the United States uh, expenditures. The largest piece um, will be the supply of goods and payments to providers, which is connected to that, right? So the amount that doctors receive in payments, the amount of, that hospitals uh, receive in payments, the, this is where a lot of that's going to come from. Um, and that, that those will be losers in the system and um, not often discussed, and maybe that is a good thing. It, it depends on, you know, what it looks at the end of the day, but that, you know, that's the trade-off you have to make there, um, that the, that it's not, it, it's not free money. Um, and there would be a shift too, and I, I, I do recognize that low-income individuals especially would be made better off depending on the, stru the structure of it, but there is an additional, there's an efficiency cost from switching from premiums, which are mostly lump sum payments for products to a tax, and which uh, usually these are funded through payroll taxes, and payroll taxes do have uh, um, efficiency um, or effects on um, labor force participation and things like that. So there is a, there is a, that effect as well that you have to take into, into consideration in, in the switch too. So Lots and lots of moving pieces at the end of the day, but I, I, I caution against the like wave the magic wand and it's everyone the, it pays does less. Not, yeah, um, it certainly isn't going to be that. It's going to be a lot, uh, um, a lot of winners, a lot of losers, um, and that the argument just needs to be made that the trade-offs are worth it. Well, and and I think that you're right to point out that there there that transfer that trans that transitional time will not be fun, no matter what it was. I mean, it certainly was was difficult when we switched to the uh, Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. That was a certain amount of growing pains. Uh, I think that will be a, a a blip compared to what we would see if we saw the overhaul that we're we're talking about. But but again, as you say, make the argument. Uh, the, these candidates need to make the argument that it's worth it. And yes, let let me ask you the. Last question I want to ask you, Kyle, is about uncertainty. I think about, and, and uh, we started here where I acknowledge that you and I are, are not talking about impeachment, despite that being the, the story of the day in Washington, but whether it becomes, uh, whether we're talking about impeachment, whether we're talking about we're on the first day of a CR that's going to end right before Thanksgiving, a continuing resolution to fund the government that's going to end in just a few weeks, whether we're talking about the fact that uh, the USCMA, the, the new NAFTA bill, has not been, uh, is, is not pushed through yet. All these things, and then, of course, on top of that, the president's behavior, the, the, the way in which impeachment is going to kind of fester in his, uh, between his ears, um, 
all of these seem to add drastically to uncertainty. And I know that there are a few things economists hate more than uncertainty. That, that much I do know. What, how do you build that into your models? How do you think about it when you're talking about the next few months and years? And, and ha- are, are we in a point now where we are getting, uh, not a, uh, I'm thinking, climate crisis too i mean just again trying to build in these 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 ideas and say you know how do we how do how do we uh, start to factor that in are we reaching a point now where uncertainty is is aggressively increasing or is that just how i feel because i follow the news all the time yeah th- there's always a certain amount of un- uncertainty in in the economy doesn't matter what ty- time it is or what's going on um but yeah, I think that there there is uncertainty, um, and I, the the area in which I'm most familiar, tax policy. There's a lot of it over the next decade. Um, Republicans passed a major tax bill. It cut taxes. It reformed the way the corporate tax works, but it's not permanent. So, come 2025 lawmakers need to make a decision. Do they make lots of it permanent or do they let let it expire? And if you're a business that wants to make investment decisions and you face the individual income tax, there's a question as to whether that lower rate that you receive now is going to be there forever. And so there's that issue. The second issue is just the, 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 uh, the federal budget deficit is significant now that also calls into question whether some of the provisions that are permanent, at least written down in a permanent fashion, like the lower corporate tax rate, are going to be there for the long haul because the federal government's probably going to need additional revenue. Um, and they may, lawmakers may, especially if uh, there's a Democratic president, may look to raise corporate taxes. Um, so there, I think in tax policy, there is... Um, there is uncertainty there. That was, it was almost uncertainty that was legislated in, um, which is su- which is somewhat unfortunate, um, because the point of tax reform is to create a stable tax base that everyone understands and can play by the same rules. But that's really not what we're facing over the next decade. Well, if we've learned anything from watching legislators work in Washington, it's that they're they're not always very good at some of the uh, things that they're even trying to do. What about uncertainty versus volatility? Because I think about uh, the ways in which economists understand those those two things, and and where are we right now in terms of a volatile environment, and 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 the the ways in which we can understand. Uh, again, I, I I'm just I'm faced with the fire hose of news every day, uh, but uh, shape these two concepts for me if you can. Yeah, if I understand the question correctly, I I guess what you mean by volatility is. Just what are the the, the potential outcomes? Um, you know, are they you know tail events that are really really bad or really really good? And then there's just the underlying un- uncertainty as to like what their what their probabilities are. Um, I mean, I yeah, I know we're not supposed to be or we're not talking about it, but yes, impeachment is a big deal. <laughs> I uh, finally got you to uh, it. Yes, um, that that is. That is a big deal. That isn't your typical thing that that happens. Um, so that that is a situation that's worse than usual. 
I, I do think the trade situations are pr the, is is pretty bad. And whether I, it's new NAFTA, whether it's TTIP yeah, or yes, TPP, unwinding a lot of these things that have been in place for a long period of time just increases the, the, the potential downside. The postal downsides. union. Yeah. The postal union. I mean, like the idea that the United States might pull out of the the ability to ship mail everywhere over over yeah. a, a fight that China is not paying enough again. I mean, this is these are. That's uncertainty. That's that's that's, yeah. that's crazy to me. Yeah. So yeah, there. I, I think that you know, there are certain events that could you know, influence the economy going forward, um, and it is worth worth paying attention to. Um, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess worth paying attention to is where we'll have to leave it because unfortunately, uh, we there there are no really good answers. That's the uh, uncertainty and the volatility. I guess that I'll leave you all with uh, Kyle Palmerlo, who's the chief economist, VP of Economic Analysis at Tax Foundation. Thank you so much for spending a great deal of time with me tonight. Well, thank you for having me.